If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Are you feeling the pressure to fill those ongoing financial gaps? I totally get it. But don't worry, I've got some exciting news that will help you turn things around. My six-week masterclass called the Intentional Fundraising Plan. It's the answer to your fundraising woes. Inside this six-week masterclass, I'll guide you every step of the way in creating a robust, diversified, and data-informed annual fundraising plan that will help you raise more money. Imagine this, a plan that tackles those financial gaps head-on, giving you the confidence and the clarity you need to succeed. Don't let those financial gaps hold you back any longer. Join the Intentional Fundraising Plan Masterclass and let's unlock the secrets to fundraising success. Together, we'll create a plan that sets you up for long-term financial stability and growth. I'm looking forward to helping you achieve fundraising greatness. You can do this. Click the link below and enroll now. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Charlotte Keene. She's a fundraiser and marketing expert based in Barcelona and highly experienced in mobilizing communities through creative, data-driven campaigns. As the Global Senior Specialist in Fundraising and Digital Engagement at World Wildlife Fund International, Charlotte provides strategic support to increase global income generation and inspire action for nature. She's a dedicated person to cultivating a vibrant community of international fundraisers, fostering innovation and collaboration. Previously at Comic Relief, a London-based NGO dedicated to a just world free from poverty, Charlotte played a key role in campaigns that raised more than $250 million U.S. And previously at Amnesty International, she contributed to a period of unprecedented acquisition success, leading the diversification of digital acquisition channels and challenging the organization to implement a new ethical framework for digital communication. Charlotte combines creativity, scientific rigor, business acumen, 
drawing upon her background as an artist and her degrees in biochemistry and sustainable management. An idealist with a grounded approach, she passionately explores the potential of digital strategies to inspire positive change. And I just have to say, the more I get to know Charlotte and the more I learn about her and really her transformational cutting-edge work, the more hope I have for the future of philanthropy and the next generation of fundraisers that are really leading now, really stepping into their leadership. And it's exciting. So Charlotte, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you for having me and for that lovely introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here and have the space to talk about these important things that we're all facing together as a community of fundraisers. We are honored that you made the time and are willing to have this conversation. I will say this much needed conversation. We need to continue pushing the envelope in this space. And I just see you as such a leader to share your experiences, your perspectives, and really what you see for the future. Thank you very much, Debbie. Yeah. So first, I'm intrigued by your background. Artist meets biochemist. Like, how does that happen? (laughs) Yeah. So I've had this a lot. And I think often there's a perception, isn't there, that there's sort of science and art are, are sort of two absolute opposite ends of the spectrum. And actually, that's never really been my experience. And I don't I don't experience that duality at all. And I think a lot of my inspiration and and kind of passions have come from similar places. So absolute love of nature really, you know, drew me towards bioscience and a curiosity with the way things work and also really inspire me in art. And I think a lot of those same principles of, yeah, curiosity, desire to sort of tap into something a little bit bigger, a creativity and thinking you know, even with kind of real scientific principles, I think that still requires a degree of imagination of whether it's kind of conceptualizing photosynthesis to the Big Bang to like magnets, you know, that still requires a kind of creativity of mind that feels really artistic to me as well. And I think in a world where, you know, a lot of the science that I've been doing has been very based in kind of particularly in computers at times in labs, but having that space to work with something like paint or clay has also enabled me to do some of my real best thinking over the years. So actually, I find those two things complement one another beautifully. And actually, I think in the sector, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, right? Like a lot of our fundraisers, digital marketeers, wider campaigners, like lots of people have kind of secret side hobbies and those outside of work passions that quite often some of the best kind of inspiration, that synthesis of thought kind of happens at the edges of different disciplines and yeah, I think the kind of diversity of thought that comes with having a kind of yeah rich experience makes us all better at our jobs and better as teams. I love that. It makes me think about this whole conversation too about work-life balance. And the truth is when you let the two kind of come together, those personal passions, whether it's throwing clay and making art and the work, uh, when you let those two things come together, really something beautiful emerges. So you inspired me already this morning. I want to jump in with a question. You have worked very much in the digital space of fundraising. What are the biggest changes you've seen in digital fundraising since the pandemic began and digital engagement really skyrocketed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what a question because so many things came together in that moment as well. So the whole digital landscape was shifting anyway. We had everything playing out with with Apple and Meta and changing privacy laws that were you know, if nothing else had happened, digital was going to receive a huge shock. And during this period where 
you know, over the last decade or so, the way that like devices have become the good quality devices and the platforms have just become so ubiquitous that suddenly content creation is, is democratized as well, which is, is brilliant, right? But we're in this era where there is just so much. Like I love those visuals. I'm not sure if you've seen the kind of 60 seconds in content that they'll do every year or six months or something when you can see just how much content is uploaded in 60 seconds across lots of different platforms. And, you know, it's just, it's an impossible amount. In a lifetime, we could never, you know, we could, we could never experience that. And so cutting through that noise is such a challenge. And so that all happening at a time when suddenly we were all indoors more, we were creating and consuming in different ways. Suddenly, you know, for marketing and fundraising, out of home, offline channels, you know, we're just getting budgets cut or just logistically impossible. And so budget was shifting to digital. So more competition as well. Greater expectation. Often that like, you know, when a huge budget swings into digital, you can't just directly multiply your scale just because you've multiplied your budget. And so there was this kind of an enormous pressure on digital. I think a lot of people in digital roles and perhaps some of those organizations and people, you know, kind of senior leadership that perhaps had less experience in digital with a lot of expectation without perhaps being in some of the details of what's necessary to make it work. And I think, you know, all of these things coming together to just say <laughs> so much emphasis, a really complicated backdrop and a whole mix of things that meant that it was always going to be more expensive. And so I think across the board, people have seen costs increasing. You yeah. know, audience pools because of those privacy laws, audience pools have decreased. And yeah, just being able to get your message out there and connect with the right people, super challenging. And also, you know, there's some really technical parts there as well. The organizations that were set up to receive things like digital payments and have really strong digital journeys, if that was already in place, they really excelled. You know, and I think there's that back end piece as well. So yeah, lots and lots of challenges coming together. I think it's really exciting as well because it's also forced us to catch up. And I think that's, that's brilliant. It needed to happen, didn't it? I agree. I think that if it had not been for the pandemic, maybe digital would have taken longer to scale to the degree that it has. But necessity, necessity to reach those audiences and to raise more money and by sharing our message, uh, it was forced. And, you know, pandemic was terrible. I wouldn't wish it for anything. But if there are any silver linings, that would be, I think, one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, to that point, of course, again, would not wish it in any means. But, you know, we can look at those aspects like it brought community together. It brought some people much closer to what they care about. And, you know, there's been there's a cultural shift as well that I think we in the industry of trying to make positive change can also use and be part of shaping. So, yeah, mm -hmm. agreed. There's some positive aspects to a really, really challenging situation. And I'm excited to see how we kind of continue to move that forward and build on some of those. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like, what's next? How do we approach that next iteration of digital? And we're going to be talking about that. I definitely want to have you share what you're seeing. You know, the world economy has been struggling. Inflation's high. The markets are unpredictable right now. And fundraisers everywhere just want to raise more money to do more good, to meet more needs, to save the planet. How might our listeners best leverage digital fundraising now 
and in particularly through year end? Sure. Great question. Yeah. So I think the principles haven't changed so much, right? And the principles are true across a lot of channels. So ultimately, like, yes, digital is is kind of more, more loud and competitive than ever in some ways, but really it's the story. It's our ability to connect supporters to the cause that's going to make the difference. And different formats, you have different amounts of times to do that. And like, yes, digital is very quick fire, right? So on lots of platforms, you have you know, less than three seconds to capture someone. So we need to be really mindful of the ways in which we tell stories and the way that we design digital experiences so that we can actually captivate people. But those principles of saying, right, okay, what do our supporters and our potential supporters care about? Like, where do we align with that? And how can we demonstrate in a short, accessible, engaging way why they should be part of this movement? You know, and so in, in times, you know, we can be really cause-led with that messaging. At times, we can really tap into other ways in which we are benefiting their lives, whether that is kind of recognizing that, you know, you can actually feel hopeful in this space that you are feeling really anxious in. Or maybe there are conversations that are really challenging to have with your children or the people around you or your family in like wider spheres, and we can help with that. And maybe it's really important for you to, yeah, feel like you take a different role in the community and we can support with that. So like really, how can we connect with our supporters' lives to help them feel part of something that they want to do? And so I think that piece around the storytelling, the proposition is just so important. And at times it's easy for us in organizations to sort of get, we're very much in our own views, right? And we can really easily put our organization first and fall into the trap that people know exactly what, I, what we do. They really understand the brand, you know? And I think just taking the time to step back and really put the audience in the middle of our thinking and design something for them and understand what they want. And so at times that's also like, how are we listening to our supporters? And we can do so in lots of ways, right? We can do so in digital through the so many analytics platforms. So you can look at the website analytics of what kind of content are people engaging with? How are they engaging? Where are they clicking? okay, we're designing these comms journeys where you might start on an ad and then you go to a page and you go to another page. Like, where are we losing people in that process? And what might that mean? And, you know, there's lots of tools. There are things like heat maps where you can see exactly where people are looking, scrolling, clicking. And you can begin to say, oh, you know, it's clear that this content isn't engaging people so well. Is that because we're putting it in front of the wrong people? Is that because it's too long? Actually, we can see that it's working quite well on desktop and not mobile. Let's look at that experience on mobile and make it better. And yeah, there's lots of ways in emails and in testing across all channels, really. You know, there's lots of different ways that we can test things and we can look at that data. But also there's the conversation aspect, right? So talking to our supporters, surveys, getting on the phone, being on the street, looking at the comments, you know, if you're running a telemarketing program, are you getting really good feedback on what people are saying? You know, taking the time to just make sure that as an organization, if our challenge is finding new supporters or keeping the supporters we have more engaged and persuading them to potentially, you know, make more of a gift and, and ultimately be a more passionate supporter with a higher lifetime value, how can we persuade them that that's what they want? And so listening to them is a huge part of that. And I think that's one of the real beautiful aspects of digital as well, is there are so many different ways that we can test what works with our supporters and we can hear and we can see those results really quickly. So I'm mm -hmm. always encouraging people to, you know, first take that moment and say, from a kind of audit point of view, what's worked so far? 
we can also look externally and say what's working elsewhere you know particularly for if you're not so confident if you're not one of those organizations that has a huge team of different specialists that are doing all different aspects of content which is is beautiful right but not everyone's in that position we can also learn from other tests we can see what's working elsewhere and begin to just borrow some of best practice and see where the gaps are and see what would resonate for us Charlotte, I love how you light up when you talk about this. You're clearly so passionate about this topic. So you touched on a lot of points. I would love to just drill down a little bit more deeply. One is just the value of listening and hearing your donors, whether it's through one-on-one conversations, which we typically have at those higher gift values, right? Those donors typically live inside a portfolio managed by a fundraiser whose job is to develop those relationships, to ask questions, to connect those values. But oftentimes at lower gift values, even recurring monthly donors who, you know, are just so key to our sustainability, oftentimes we don't listen. We just continue to push, push, push information at them, to them. I love that you're talking about surveys and looking at the analytics and maybe even doing a a town hall or a focus group or bringing those groups together for some small group face-to-face. I think that's so important, that talking and listening. And really, if you look at the generosity crisis that's being experienced here in the U.S. and to some degree even in Canada, we are having higher levels of retention at those big gift values, but the bottom is falling out. Our pipeline is falling out. So in the U.S., you know, just even 10 years ago, it was about 60% of U.S. households were making gifts annually, and now it's less than 50%. So those bottom givers are really going away. And so that listening and that relationship and connecting on values, that is going to be more and more important. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that really, really helps that in the digital sphere is is the ability to test. So we don't know what's going to work in the moment always, right? And, you know, fundraisers have been testing forever, whether that was kind of, you know, in print, but but the test cycle might take you more like three months. In digital, you can see that quite quickly. But, you know, to your point before around like for an end of year campaign, I would be putting together lots of different creative variants for your pay acquisition. So what is it that's really motivating? You know, you can test lots of different messaging propositions, different imagery. Is it the kind of value exchange? Is it the tax aspects? You know, you can put all of those different messages out there. And then, you know, most of the big platforms are just going to algorithmically optimize to what really connects with the audience as well. So it's not even like we're in a position where we have to say, okay, I have the exact idea for the campaign and the exact one message that's going to connect with our audience. It's like, of course, we have this beautiful campaign concept and creative wrap, but within that, we can test loads of different messages, loads of different visuals and see what's really working. And that's a fantastic aspect. And I'm working a lot with fundraisers, trying to get them to sort of have frameworks that support in that. So, you know, when we're designing the messaging for a campaign and the visuals, I'll often have tables that look at the different aspects that we could be really playing so you know we know that high arousal emotions work really well so you know let's design initially one message that really plays on outrage 
another one that really plays on imagination, another one that really looks at hope, another one super focused on urgency, another one very much framed in social proof. And kind of looking at all of the different things that we can really dial into. And then maybe we'll have 10 of those and we'll go, actually, I think these are the five priorities that we're going to test. And we're going to test with those with some different visual variants as well. And so much of the time, if you put that out, there are really clear winners. And so that process is fantastic. You know, that optimization allows us to make our money go further. And it also enables us to kind of keep improving our future tests. So again, with that, the thing that's really nice in digital is like, you know, you can test and then you draw that, you've got that insight. And so documenting that insight, making sure that teams are sharing those insights, the successes and the failures, and that they're then building that into future tests. So testing is, you know, it's a very iterative, ongoing, planned process where you can keep building on that good work. And again, if you're having trouble with that acquisition volume, you know, getting those tests right at the beginning are so important. And then also thinking about how you can really optimize your journey. So if you're driving loads of really interested people to your donation page, they're going, actually, yeah, I do want to become a monthly donor. This feels right. And they click, but then the load time is really, really bad. Or, you know, there's an issue, there's lots of pages, they get to a form and there are so many fields for them to fill in and partway through they go, oh, and I can't pay with Apple Pay. And no, because maybe, yeah, and maybe it felt good. But if they're the people that feel quite aligned to our cause, but they also feel aligned to different causes and they're also used to giving and participating lots of different ways. So I think being aware of how we do the absolute most with those warm people that are showing us that they are interested in becoming those regular givers, we need to be doing absolutely everything we can to just get out of their way and make that journey just as simple as it possibly can be. And then absolutely to your point around you know acquisition being challenging, I know a lot of people are focusing much more on retention and digital plays you know, a, a super important role in that as well and how we continue to across channels and across different types of content, be inspiring our donors, be thanking our donors and making sure that they continue to feel aligned and feel that supporting our organizations is an experience that is a good way of aligning them to their values and the lifestyle that they want to have and the impact that they want to have. I love this conversation. I think what you're really driving home is around messaging, like clear, simple human, removing the barriers, making it easy to activate on the emotional response to whichever of those appeals you're testing. And two things. One, I think some of our listeners could be from, you know, small shops and they're thinking, well, yeah, Charlotte's brilliant and she's got the resources of World Wildlife Fund International. But what I'm hearing, and I want to just have you maybe speak to, is that slowing down to do the test, to be thoughtful, to review the analytics. It might feel like slowing down, but it really, you're slowing down so you can propel your results, right? So you are going to have a higher return on investment. And dare I say, it would be even perhaps wiser to do even a smaller targeted appeal to supporters that you really understand what resonates with them and you're speaking to them in the channel of their preference with the message and the opportunity that is most going to resonate with them than this huge shotgun approach. Let's just send this multi-channel, you know, direct mail with digital to every single person in our database. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you've got the capacity to do a strategic, well thought through, multi-channel, really interactive, all the bells and whistles campaign, like fantastic, fantastic. And of course, you know, some of the amazing INGO offices out there absolutely can. You know, even within WWF, some of our offices absolutely can. And others are, you know, it might be one fundraiser that's wearing so many hats, you know. But I think some of those principles hold true for sure. And I absolutely agree with your point of I would always favor doing a few things very well and making sure you've really got those basics down and that you're coming at it strategically, not tactically. I would always favor that than trying to do too many things at once at the cost of the quality of all of it. And there are some small things that you can do regardless of your size. You know, I get really excited about behavioral economics, right? And the different ways that we can psychologically nudge people and kind of support the very rational thing that is the very irrational thing that is the human experience. There are so, so many fascinating studies on the different ways that we can kind of subtly guide people towards a certain thing. So, you know, some of the far more obvious ones around guiding are just, you know, making sure your call to action button is is nice and visible and a good color. but there, there are loads of things that we can do to sort of encourage people towards a journey. You know, a lot of things like priming. So what's priming and anchoring? What state of mind are we bringing people to something in? And what is the first thing that they're gravitating towards? So I wouldn't have single giving selected as my default option a lot of the time, and I wouldn't have it the lowest value. I'd be going in the kind of middle range monthly giving value. Yeah. I would be tapping into, yeah, lots of the different kind of small, small motivators that are going to nudge people along that. Just some of the popular things around, like with social proof, we see the kind of, we do a lot of the most popular gift or, you know, there's some really nice tests around most people or most people in your area, most people in Detroit, Tammy, are giving $200 towards this campaign. Mm-hmm. There's lots of different things that we can test like that that don't require you to have a big platform that you're investing lots in monthly and you have a team specializing in. There are some really simple tests that work really well. Again, that would be that kind of smaller approach. So one of our offices recently was trying to bring in more monthly donors from their existing email supporter base. And they tested the exact same messaging, the exact same visuals. One email just had one button and that one button said, start a monthly gift. And another email had three buttons and one said start a monthly gift, one said start a monthly perhaps $10 and another perhaps $15. And that second version got more than twice as many donors coming in. Wow. Um, A slightly lower average gift, slightly lower, but, you know, ultimately looking at long-term income, hugely different. And that's not a test that requires, you know, a really, really complex team and a big multi-channel approach, right? And I think that's a big part of what's exciting about how we can keep seeing what works for people in digital and keep doing those sort of small, small psychological nudges towards different ways. And, you know, it might be that that's a, that test would work really well in one context and not so well in another. And actually thinking about things like your donation values is really important. And to that point around the kind of psychological nudges, you see a lot of the kind of decoy effect with donation values. And there's lots of Evidence to suggest, yeah, people don't like decimal numbers, people don't like complicated numbers. And the presence of a very large number often brings our thinking up. It kind of, yeah, anchors us further towards that decoy in the same way that restaurants have been doing forever, haven't they? They've been putting that that five hundred dollar bottle of wine so that suddenly <laughs> that eighty dollars seems like a bargain. It works in fundraising yes. too. 
What a good decision. Yeah. And that's more and more understood, actually, outside of just us thinking about what might work. You know, there are platforms now that are using AI to adjust the giving value based on the device you're on, based on the location you're in, the postcode you're in, what that might allude to about your disposable income. And so, yeah, having a think about what's things like that, what's the right price point. And yeah, that could be as simple as you're saying, like more like a single channel. Don't You know, if you're going out with just an email campaign to your existing supporter base, just taking that time to go okay, what do we know about what's resonated with these audiences before? What tests have we previously done that we can build upon? What might be really high impact in this context? Yeah, do we think it's a moment where lower value giving feels right and we're going to get more volume? Or actually, are we going to go after the people that we think really connect to the cause? And we might get fewer of them, but we think that they're going to donate more. And yeah, what kind of visuals, what kind of message do we think is really going to resonate? And then maybe going, okay, here's a hypothesis of two. And these are what we think are going to be the most high impact. And so we're going to prime the email to go out to sort of enough of an audience that we'll get a significant response. We'll see which one wins and then we'll send that one out. I would absolutely favor that over trying to do loads and loads of different things on different channels and not taking the moment to do that thinking both beforehand and also afterwards. So that we're learning yeah. from that insight, we're sharing it with our teams, and that we're collectively building on this insight-driven approach. I love it. Charlotte, are you seeing specific uh, giving patterns by generation? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's everyone wants a simple, simple answer to this. And I don't think we're at the point <laughs> where we have no simple answer, is there? It's it's shifting for sure. We know that younger people have different expectations around ways that they want to engage with organizations. I think there's also a, a challenge to us to also think about older donors. And there's been a stereotype for a really long time that, you know, digital isn't the channel for older donors, but actually we're seeing that that's not so much the case anymore. And whilst they're not going to be so much on perhaps TikTok and, and they're more inclined to open emails, they've still got loads of digital touch points. And during the pandemic, have been doing much more around whether it's kind of Zoom or WhatsApp calling to stay in touch with family and community. And they might be more inclined to be on desktop than mobile, but actually are still really digitally literate and might be playing mobile games with their friends. Words with friends was a really popular one with an sure. older demographic. So I think, yeah, thinking about it really across age ranges is really important. And of course, younger people are on different platforms. They have different expectations. A lot of the time we know that we need to do a bit more of a kind of engagement piece as well. And for too long, the kind of single, single digital asset that worked for awareness and consideration and conversion and could be run on a channel with one audience group like worked really well there was a real gravy train moment with that in meta kind of five years ago and yeah we need to be more considered we need to think about what builds trust and what doesn't with different organizations mm -hmm. and how we can be in spaces meaningfully and how we play into word of mouth and whether or not our products resonate and offer across generations but particularly with a younger mm -hmm. generation, whether we're offering something that's really appropriate. And I think we also just need to be mindful in these tricky times with acquisition and lifetime value, how much that, that kind of more back office, to like retention-based fundraising view and our perhaps more front marketing view that have different objectives and are going to be looking at KPIs, whether those are feeding one another. Because we might be able to bring in regular donors that are 25 that do resonate with the cause, 
but we often see that the attrition rate is really high. And so the lifetime value is far, far, far lower. And so we just need to be connecting the dots there because it may well be that it's actually very much in line with our objectives to be recruiting those, but actually just taking that age-based or generational or, or the different ways that you want to cut it view might just say, actually, we do want to bring these people in, but we're conscious of the ROI. So we are going to make the threshold, the point at which we'll pay for them is going to be a lower price point. Whereas this group mm -hmm. brings us lots more ROI. And so we're going to bid a bit aggressively in digital and we were willing to pay more because the return on ad spend, the return on our investment is so much higher. So I think having a view of the different KPIs that we want to look at across those different age groups really matters. And again, back to the point before, right? It's storytelling and it's, it's speaking to supporters and potential supporters. And if it's an organizational objective to engage with a much younger generation, are we reflecting that in our workforce? And therefore, how do we want to approach that? Do we want to work with interns? Do we want to have focus groups with, again, it depends what age range you're really going with, but do we have the way to communicate on those channels and with those people in a way that's authentic and doesn't kind of feel a bit clunky and old fashioned? So again, just, is it really in line with our objectives? Because I think there's a lot of pressure I'm hearing. Everyone right now really wants to be, particularly TikTokers, uh, can we make TikTok work? Absolutely some can. Is it in line with your strategic priorities? And are you well set up and resourced to do it in a way that will set you up for success? Really excellent. You made so many good points there. But one that I really want to underscore is that the collaboration and the communication and, you know, the making certain that we're really maximizing and being in sync between marketing and fundraising, because those are not siloed activities when they work well at their best. But inside a lot of organizations, there is a natural tension, I think, between marketing and fundraising. And so we need to figure that out and really work together to maximize giving. And I also want to underscore your point around retention and lifetime value, like not just looking at this quarter's goal or hitting this year's fundraising revenue goal or whatever the KPI, the metric is, to really taking a longer view, right? So the more that we invest, like retention and gift value upgrades, lifetime value, monthly giving, like those are the things that are going to really help us sustain. Acquisition, absolutely, we need acquisition to continue feeding that funnel and building our base of, you know, incredible people who resonate with our values, who are in alignment with our mission. But during a tough economic time, is acquisition the best investment of time and money and resource? You know, likely not. I mean, there are always exceptions, but I think focusing these precious resources during this tough economic time on retention and upgrades and even expanding one-time donors into a monthly giving program is a very important strategy through the end of this year and beyond. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We need to be as responsible as we can with the resources we have and realistic to the scenario. You know, what we have seen time and time again, haven't we, is that the organizations that continue to invest through these difficult periods tend to thrive more. So it can be tempting, yeah. can't it, when costs shoot up to just say, okay, we pull the investment, which I think needs to be approached with caution as well. But making sure that, yes, we're thinking about really how we can 
we can do it in the most effective way and maybe that that channel less so now and so we're really going to reduce our volume reduce our spend and focus efforts elsewhere yeah I think we're having these conversations everywhere aren't we about the best use of resource and we always have but especially during challenging times and I agree with you that kind of reading in between the lines sometimes challenging times present the most significant opportunities absolutely and I think that instead of being fearful we should really be more entrepreneurial and look at what is the opportunity in this challenge. Yeah. Which is not necessarily natural to nonprofits. I mean, many nonprofits are very risk adverse. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But I think one thing that we can be quite heartened by is as COVID was coming, everyone expected fundraising was just going to fall off a cliff and it was going to be one of the most challenging times for fundraising in terms of, you know, hard results. And, And it wasn't, you know, the growth in fundraising during that period was actually really amazing. And it was for sure, one of the hardest times for many other reasons, right? But yeah, often often there is an opportunity in these challenges and mm-hmm. taking the time to kind of, yeah, question, question our immediate response is really important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you made the brilliant point about telling the story, telling a compelling, authentic, genuine story, especially during tough times is so important. And just to underscore your brilliant point about what really happened, what we feared would happen during the pandemic to giving and what actually happened here in the U.S., giving increased year over year. So from 2019 to 2020, it was a 6% increase in giving adjusted for inflation. And that's the highest percentage in the history of giving since we've been tracking it in the U.S., which is well over 40 years now. So yeah, tell the story connect with people, and give them opportunities to make a difference. Love it. Love it. Okay. So when you were at Amnesty International, you specialized in donor acquisition. We've been talking a bit about acquisition. And you and your team achieved unprecedented success, leading the diversification of digital acquisition channels and challenging the organization to implement a new ethical framework for digital communication. So tell us, because times will get better, and we'll we'll be back on the acquisition bandwagon in addition to retention and gift value upgrades and lifetime value. 
But tell us how you approach digital donor acquisition and tell us more about this ethical framework for digital communication. That phrase really captured my attention. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it was a really fantastic moment for acquisition and partly because, you know, the story, the story was really resonating with people at that point. It was during the pandemic and, and people wanted to feel part of something, feel part of a movement that was making a difference. And so acquisition, we were focused on digital mobilization, my team. So that was like fundraising being a financial supporter acquisition being a huge part of that, but also looking at it as a wider way of how do we acquire people into the movement, some around more of those kind of brand and engagement metrics, but also very much, you know, supporters that come in as, I kind of hate the term lead generation, but very much that lead generation route and converting there. And I, I was lucky to come in at a point as well. It was really interesting in that we were working in Agile. We'd had an amazing head of digital or had implemented that. And so we were really trying to work in an integrated way, which is really exciting. And building on the successes of what we'd already seen, sharing lots of learning. So again, to that point, we were really listening to the data. We were having a very kind of cohesive approach to what tests were coming next, what would work best. We had a nice broad product portfolio, which we had the ability to do because of our size and budget. So as well as, well as kind of direct donation asks around donation, around membership. We were also running lots of quizzes that were related to human rights issues and testing new products and putting out petitions and lots of different ways, lots of different motivations for people to, to join the movement. And yeah, trying to approach that with that combination of using the data, listening to the data and being creative and continue to optimize. And yeah, we had the ability to optimize that program really nicely. We had a cold awakening to the do not put all of your eggs in one basket when, because of the US elections, in fact, Meta had a huge crackdown on lots of different things with ads. And despite it having absolutely no correlation, decided that a lot of our advertising that was more political was not appropriate for the platform at that time. And so mm. this was just coming into end of year where our budgets were really amping up. We had all our audiences super well optimized. It was looking like it was going to be really lucrative. And we lost access and we lost access for weeks and as did lots of other offices around. So I was in the UK office, lots of other offices across the Amnesty Network, which, you know, as we've seen with face to face as well with the pandemic, right? You know, having the we need to have a sufficiently diversified portfolio to be able to be agile yeah. and adaptive in those kind of moments. And so I was also looking at what other channels would be appropriate to invest in digitally and putting together like all the different channels that we saw might have a possibility and then, you know, deciding what we're going to be the first priorities around investment. So yeah, it was challenging in its moments, but really brought home some of those super important principles. And yeah, it was, again, that point around, around the kind of pandemic success. I think membership was up 30% on forecasts or something like that. It was, yeah, yeah, it was a real opportunity. And yeah, the point around like thinking about acquisition ethically. So I was really in the details of acquisition there. And that kind of enabled me to have a very, a very specific view of the organization and particularly at a moment where the whole organization's objectives are really funneling through digital, right? You're at this kind of funnel point between lots and lots of different teams, lots of messages, lots of priorities, and then the wider world. And what became very clear to me was that we were signing off lots of content that was appropriate in line with our values, in line with our mission. 
but we were not kind of looking at the communications footprint. So not just what we were putting out, but what emerged in the patterns that we were putting Mm -hmm. out. And I think this is something we need to be really conscious of with, particularly with digital, where we are working with algorithms and the ability to optimize is fantastic because we can test what works and we can be way more effective with our budget, which is exactly what we want to do, right? But it also means perhaps we've signed off, you know, over several campaigns, 30 different messages. But what about if 25 of those were only seen a few thousand times and one of them was seen a hundred million times? Like, did we mean for that to happen, you know? And has someone got a view of what's happening? And particularly if we've got kind of more always on campaigns, that might be happening across a much longer period. And so my huge desire there was to just make sure that we had a lens on where our communications were landing in, in the wider culture. And so making sure that we were kind of alive to, to volume and also the potential for misunderstanding. So one thing mm. that I was really conscious of is, for example, we were doing a lot of campaigning around the very brave women in Iran that were removing their headscarves in protest of freedom of expression, you know, really standing up and fighting for their rights in, in horrendous situations. And so we were communicating really heavily on that, which is, yeah, very much appropriate, spreading awareness, bringing new supporters into the movement because they really cared about that. But we were also doing it at a time when Islamophobia was hugely, hugely on the rise in the UK and hate crime was just skyrocketing. And so for us that are sitting there going, we are putting this message out there because we are pro freedom of expression. We are pro women's choice. And Muslim women should be allowed to make the choice that feels right for them. And so we're there thinking that we are just supporting Muslim women and other women in those locations to to stand up for their rights. But we are doing so in an environment that could easily say, actually, Islam is inherently oppressive. And when we're working in a platform like digital, if we're suddenly putting that message out hundreds of millions of times, And if we know that less than 2% of people are going to engage with that content, so the 98% might see it and go, you know, if we are in in a space where there is potential for misunderstanding, we have additional responsibility. And so let's just make sure that we're looking at that communications footprint that we have, setting it in the wider cultural context, making sure that we're narrative mapping, making sure that we are just really making sure that our ethical objectives, our values, our standards and our strategy there is being lived over here. And I think the, the important thing there is in the patterns and where it lands. And because the processes that we have are more likely to go, yes, that content works, let's get it out the door. We might just miss that piece. So I was really keen to yeah, bring in an approach that was taking that wider view and bringing together some kind of wider guiding principles to make sure that we could really live what we were trying to achieve. That's incredibly powerful. And the example you gave illuminates that perfectly, like the unintended consequences of someone that sees that message at a glance. And I recently read, I think it was an article from The Atlantic that said something like it was more than 80% of people only read the headlines. They don't actually consume the full content. And so for those who don't, it could feed a negative narrative to the point of your example. Wow. Again, it speaks to the point of being very intentional and planful and reflective 
before we push the go button. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wow. And I think the thing is like, we can absolutely meet some of these challenges, right? But yes. taking the moment to pause and, and be mindful of what they are, I think is just so important. And as we're stepping into new spaces and yeah, things like algorithms are perhaps, yeah, delivering results that aren't in line with our expectations. Yeah, taking the moment to, to really reflect on what's happening and identify those challenges so, so that we can solve them. Because, you know, there are a lot of good people in this sector that can solve those kind of challenges. Yeah, indeed. So back in February, you wrote a great article on LinkedIn, and that's how, you know, you captured my attention. The article was about 10 ways to use chat GBT. And of course, since, you know, AI technology is rapidly changing. So what I read in February is very dated. I mean, that was months ago. Isn't it amazing that so, it's moving that fast? Yeah. Yeah, it really, really is. So how do you see chat GPT enhancing fundraising success and helping fundraisers be more efficient and more effective now, today? Yeah, absolutely. So for those who might be less familiar, I'm sure everyone's been hearing lots about this. So ChatGPT is a tool that has learned loads and loads and loads from, from text, lots of different language sources. It's a large language model that we can now ask questions to, and it responds in a way that is not dissimilar to a human responding. And it can do so at enormous speed, and it has learned from a, a really wide range of content. ChatGPT, the, the kind of free version, learned up until 2021, but now there are pro versions and there's you know, Bing and, and Google also have, have some very similar tools that can be looking across the internet and so constantly learning, which, yeah, means that we have these very intelligent, almost personal assistants, if you like. That presents, wow, the opportunity there is huge. I think we also need to be really, really mindful of the risks. So doing this in a responsible way. I cannot emphasize enough, but yeah, we can come back to that. But I think what I find really exciting around, around fundraising is that we, we have limited resource. We don't have the luxury of enormous teams, enormous content teams a lot of the time, tons of copywriters, lots of people that have the time and the headspace to really step back and think creatively and think strategically. You know, we are working with really limited resources and something like ChatGPT can just cut down our manual tasks in a really big way and create brilliant first edits of so many different things that we might want to achieve. I think content creation is a nice example that we can explore a little bit. So you could go into ChatGPT and say, I am writing an end of year appeal. I can say I am working for WWF. My objective is to drive regular donation. My story is about plastics in nature. I know that my audience looks like this in terms of their values, their interests, locations. I want to tap into collective pride and a sense of urgency, a sense of outrage that ultimately becomes hope. And I want a suite of assets across email, five different variants for Facebook, Twitter, like whatever social media channels, whatever channels you want to put in there, basically. And it just will go, there you go, dear Tammy, and can just write very, very good content, very yeah. good content, very quickly. I said the term first draft there, and I think I would really like people to have that in their minds. The term human in the loop gets used quite a lot, but yeah 
using AI to assist our content creation, I would really encourage people to not directly publish and to make sure that you are editing it and fact checking it and making sure that it's absolutely right. We can, in terms of things like tone of voice, we can put in our brand guidelines. We could put in our tone of voice to make sure, and we could put in previous examples that have worked well. But yeah, you basically can just have instantly a whole suite of assets. And, you know, particularly if you're thinking about your social media calendar for the next few months, you can instantly have so many things available that can maybe get you 70% of the way there. And this absolutely isn't saying let's replace the people that are doing that. Like, absolutely not. I would be horrified if people were looking to replace jobs instantly with anything like this in the sector. But I think what it can do is say, actually, how can we free up the time of the people that work in these areas to be more creative and to be more strategic. And other examples in relation to content, you know, one of the challenges I see a lot of the time is that across NGOs, right, we have some really amazing content that might be appropriate for institutions, for politicians, for scientific leaders. But then we want to kind of bring that message out for mass communications as well. And, you know, we could instantly just feed a report in that might be super technical about, you know, we've been talking about deep sea mining lately and like some of the more, the, the language and the number of like the, the statistics, the tone, the style that might work for a scientific report, but we absolutely know isn't going to work for mass engagement. You know, you could just drop that in and go summarize the key points or write this in a way that's appropriate for a Facebook post or explain this to a five-year-old. And suddenly you have this sort of content translator, if you will. And I find that really exciting because I see in lots of programs, I see that as a real pain point in terms of resource. And again, it's, it's a first draft. It's, it's fact checking. It's making sure that we're being really robust, but that's really big opportunity. And a lot of what I'm hearing is um, from people that are real celebrators of things like ChatGPT are, have your team spending one hour a week figuring out how they can save more than one hour a week. And quite quickly, it will become apparent how much more time you can save. So we have so many different administrative tasks, right? If we're recruiting, we could say, I I need to put together a job spec for this role. And you might have some initial bullet points and you've got the first draft. And again, of course, we need to edit that. And one of the restrictions is we absolutely need to be very, very rigorous with our data protection processes. So I'm absolutely not encouraging any of those aspects of recruitment to be put in like far, far from. But getting us a little bit further on that journey, or I am writing a proposal, or actually you might say, I want to learn much more about social media advertising. Hey, ChatGPT, curate me a learning experience. I want to learn for 20 minutes a day across a typical, like I, I'm a very visual learner. I want to learn a lot about best practices for digital advertising with examples peppered along the way. You know, there's so many different ways that actually if we go, yeah. what is it I want to do this week? where it could just support us to do those tasks far more quickly. But we need to be mindful of doing that in a responsible way. There are some really big considerations there, right? The examples that I'm referring to around the kind of content creation are perhaps a bit less problematic because we are feeding in the content. But when we are thinking more broadly, if we're asking questions that are going to really be based on a lot of the content that ChatGPT or or a similar platform has learned on, it will perpetuate those biases. And that's one thing that can be really problematic and we need to be really mindful of. 
There are also environmental considerations. You know, there was an enormous amount of energy gone into those training models. So again, deciding whether or not that is in line with your objectives, with your priorities organizationally, and just being mindful of if that is something that you're going to be using, just having the justifications to that. Another really, really key considerations is these are not truth tellers, these tools. And quite literally, ChatGPT is very, very famous for this. It is, if you like, it's a people pleaser. <laughs> and so it kind if of it tells us exactly what we're asking for. Yeah. And if, if you ask for 10 facts about something and it only finds five, it will make the other five up. And so again, that fact checking piece is so, so, so important. And again, I cannot emphasize enough around data privacy. Do not put in things that you wouldn't share with any other third party app. It's a third party app. And you can turn off its ability to, to remember the conversation and continue like feeding that in elsewhere. But even so, I absolutely would not go anywhere near personal data, business data, anything that you need to be careful of, just avoid. But if you're thinking about applications that might benefit from feeding those things afterwards, what you can do is you can use a tool like this to create a draft and then you can take that offline or to a different space privately and make sure that you're feeding in any of those more sensitive aspects in a way that's just mm -hmm. absolutely privacy secure. I love that. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of it, there might be some wisdom in creating kind of a department or even agency, an organizational guideline around the use of ChatGPT or other AI tools, similar to how we have a you know brand guidelines. Yeah, absolutely. We use this font. We use these colors. We focus on strength-based language and we don't reinforce negative stereotypes. That could be helpful, even just a simple one-pager. And you could probably go to ChatGPT and say, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah how do i need to approach a framework to use your responsibility absolutely i think that's yeah lots of organizations are working towards that i think being clear about the different applications there is really important and you know for some it might be like it's acceptable to use this for draft if we are being data compliant but we're not going to publish final materials text is a slightly easier one in some ways because we can very simply edit it Imagery and videos is perhaps a little bit more complicated. Of course, we can ed edit, but not quite as simply. You know, at WWF, we are super committed to authentic storytelling, as, as many, many NGOs are, right? So putting out AI-generated imagery in lots of examples wouldn't be at all appropriate. And yeah. in those examples where it might be looking to kind of replicate or seem like photography, I think lots of organizations would have a very, very clear steer on that. But if it's looking to, to imagine things like a future, like our WWF Germany put out a campaign that was imagining well-known works of art in a hundred years time at different levels of climate change. And in that instance, you know, it, it does a wonderful job at imagining a future and bringing together a creative execution. of. So again, I think just being really clear about the applications of when it would be appropriate to do so and when it wouldn't. And, you know, it, I think in some examples, whether it's for things like lead generation storybooks. You know, if you're looking to create a short animated story, something like that could be fantastic. But in other channels, it's simply not appropriate. And also the copyright is a very sensitive area and the lawsuits are beginning to come. Mm. So again, I think erring on the side of caution and with something like chat, making sure you're fact checking and making sure that you are editing so that the content that you put out, if it is right for you to use a tool like this, that the content that you're putting out was AI assisted, not AI produced. 
That's very good. Great distinction. And I think if anyone out there is looking to to sort of play in this space and, and get better, there's, I mean, there's lots of good tutorials out there. You can also say to ChatGPT, hey, ChatGPT, how can I get good at using you? Can you ask me some questions and show me some examples? And you can do it that way. But I think the kind of trial and error approach is fantastic. And I heard some time ago the term prompt engineering, which just kind of, yeah, excited something in my mind and made me realize how <laughs> that's a thing of the future now is, you know, learning how to do a really good prompt matters. And I hear lots of people going, oh, I tried ChatGPT, but it created something that was, felt a bit dry and robotic. And that's absolutely in response to the kind of prompt you put in. And you could literally say, great, this time make that content a little more inspiring. Could you use an example that, could you make it more conversational? Could you make it feel a bit more like this? And that kind of process of iterating is really important. And the more that you can feed it, the better. So not just create me an email or create me a fundraising email, but create me an email for this objective, for this audience, using these emotional hooks and mobile optimized and tapping into, yes, this sense of, of national pride for this national treasure or whatever it is. The more information you put in, the better response. And again, don't mm. be scared to edit and sort of say that was good, but that was a bit long or that was a bit complicated. Yeah, could you explain this in a way that a child would understand? Or, or yeah, could you reimagine that differently? And I think, yeah, for anyone that wants to get a bit better at this, I'd really encourage them to, to just play around and write some stories. And, you know, if you're nervous about using this for professional use, just have a play, sit down with some friends or sit down with your children. I have a niece and nephew and my brother has already imagined whole story worlds of, of tiger kings and rainbow palaces where they are helping write the story and mid-journey is helping imagine the different rooms of the Rainbow Palace and the meeting of the Tiger Lords and all of these <laughs> wonderful things, you know. So I think being a bit playful really helps bring to light some of the different ways that this, is, this could also help us in, in our organizations. Mm. I love it. And it's not lost on me that the beginning of our conversation about being thoughtful, being intentional and how much time that takes and the current part of our conversation about ways to be more efficient, effective, to save time through AI-assisted or ChatGPT-assisted content or how-to curation, like those two things go together, right? One, like the AI can help enable you having more time to be more thoughtful and it can inform the process as well. Inform, not create yes. entirely. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, the topic of AI is so big. There are so many things that we could talk about. And there are loads of other different application and tools out there that could really support fundraising. But some of them are more complex, more expensive, and would require an enormous organizational approach. ChatGPT is free and it's based around quite similar behaviors to those that we're already doing. You can just kind of, you know, it feels to me more like a quick win if we do so responsibly. I will tell you, I have been in the fundraising profession for 25 years. And there came a point when like all of this began emerging and it was donor-centered fundraising, community-centered fundraising, and Chad GPT, like, you know, the last few years, there have been a lot of new ideas and new tools emerging. And there was that moment where I'm like, I knew how to do this a year ago. And there's that moment where you're like, okay. I am dedicated to being a lifelong learner. I'm going to lean into this and I am going to embrace it. And, and it has become so exciting. 
But there, for many people in my shoes who've been doing this a very, very long time, you could have that feeling like, oh my gosh, what do I have to learn now? But I would just encourage anyone who has a, just a little teeny inkling, a sprinkle of that, to just dismiss it and lean in. Because these are the tools of not just the future, these are the tools of the present. And if we're going to continue doing service to our missions, whatever they may be, these are the things we have to embrace and learn and leverage and maximize to continue help changing the world and making it a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And I really agree. The absolute plethora of tools that we could be using and, and areas that we could be learning about and all of the different kind of specialisms that are cropping up. There's a lot there and particularly in digital, you know, it's a lot. And I think it's really, really important to not fall to that and start trying to do everything and invest in everything and learn in everything and, and be considered about which ones. And I think that's a really important part of conversations like this and conferences and connecting and networking to understand which are the ones that are really relevant. And, you know, for something like the kind of generative text, it's coming in, you know, Microsoft are implementing it in a very, very big way soon with Windows. Google are implementing it far more. It's already in being like, it's going to be, this one is, is not going away. You know, I think there's going to be lots of different iterations and implications around things like privacy, but it's not going away. And I think it's, I, I, I don't want to, and I don't want our teams to de-skill in these areas that could really, really be beneficial. And, you know, of course, those other applications around amazing, you know, personalized content experiences and some really, some of the backend reporting and data usage and way smarter segmentation. There's a lot of really, really exciting stuff going on, but maybe that falls to, to certain other specialty areas, whereas some of this kind of touches all of us much more and it's going to be absolutely integrated into our computers as built in moving forwards and so yeah that kind of point around not de-skilling feels really important and again this is one of those examples that's actually quite playful and fun love it all right i could talk to you all day charlotte i truly could but i can't <laughs> and you've been so generous with your time what i'd like to do is kind of move to some rapid fire insightful questions that we ask of all of our guests at the end of each episode to add even more value. Are you game? Absolutely. Okay. First question. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Ooh. So I think designing as if someone is distracted, one foot out the door, slightly stressed, multi-screening, maybe there's a kid screaming at their feet, maybe it's been a rough day design for those people. I think we can fall mm. into the trap of, of feeling like our supporters and our potential supporters are just sitting there going, yes, I am just ready for a long, deep conversation. I will read everything you put out. I will find all the gems. I will move on this journey, even if it's not, you know, that's just not the reality. And so I think having our audience in mind and expecting that that audience is distracted and one foot out the door and doing our, our best to communicate to that person not someone with all the time on the world making eye contact yeah. and absolutely ready to absorb our messages is a very useful reminder. Very useful indeed. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? Ooh, there's lots here. I really like Contagious by Jonah Berger because I mean that, that really brought to light some of those kind of behavioral economics principles and is a really nice reminder of all of the different things that motivate people. And particularly, you know, we are quite irrational beings and we are 
very social community oriented beings and just being mindful of, of the realities of the ways that we are motivated and communicate. I think it's just super relevant for us as fundraisers, marketeers. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess? Storytelling. Yes. Um, being insight driven. And, and being adaptive. Mm, love that. I also love that you said insight driven, not data driven. I think the insights, it's like data informs the insights. It's the analysis. It's kind of like that old saying that knowledge is power, but the truth is the saying is applied knowledge is power. So it's not just the surface data, it's the insights you gain from the data. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. I think we also have a tendency to think of data as numbers in, in a technology device, whereas actually yeah. faces on the street are acquiring so many different data points and learning things, but they might not define that as data and being data-driven. Mm-mm. Good stuff. What's your favorite fundraising application or tool? So not fundraising specifically, but one I use a lot and encourage so many others to use because I think it's a goldmine is the Meta Ads Library. So for those of you who don't know that, you can go online and see any meta advert that other organizations have put out. Right. So in terms of like competitor analysis and seeing what's landing, you can yeah look at what's, what's going on around the world, what's going on in your market, NGOs, but also across, across sectors. And you can search by different keywords and you don't have the results there. So you can't see what the cost was or what the conversion rate, the click through. But what you can see is how long that ad's been running. So you can make the assumption that if an organization's been running that for three months, six months, a year, it's working. <laughs> yeah, really good. That's a new one for me. So thank you. What's your favorite conference and why? So I am feeling very inspired this week because I was at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Conference Convention, Fundraising Convention here in London. So that is very much front of mind right now. So shout out to the amazing team there. And you spoke, correct? Yeah, I was speaking about digital mobilization on, on a panel there. Yeah. So exciting. Last question. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession? Celebrate the wins. Celebrate the wins. It's a sector with a lot of stresses, a lot of burnout for individuals, for teams. Yeah. Celebrate those small wins. Make sure you're sharing them between team and Skills like thinking outside of silos and getting buy-in, educating about the role of fundraising in digital is, is super important as much as what you're going to read on your actual job description. And yeah, as I just can't echo enough, it's, it's a challenging sector. And I think the more that we can do to, to celebrate those small wins along the way, personally, as teams and as teams to kind of motivate each other and break down those silos. Lots of that. Brilliant. Brilliant. Charlotte, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Tammy. Real pleasure. Oh, my goodness. I've learned so much. I'm inspired. I have a to-do list on ChatGPT, and I have been playing with it, and yet you've inspired me like in new ways I can play with it. So if you want to learn more about Charlotte, her incredible work at WWF International, or to follow her on LinkedIn, we've included links in the show notes, as well as links to the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Mm -hmm. 
thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tea of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a fundraising transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransform.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of $27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.